0: I'm going to introduce to you the context that we covered last week and then jump into a little bit of Romans chapter 7. Romans 6, 10 through 11. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 22 through 23 then is another piece that leads right into Romans chapter 27. In fact, it's the final verses of 6 that lead into 7. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right, Romans 7, 18 through 24. Let's get to the very core of our soul. Paul says, and I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't wanna do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my Heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is, so, that is still within me. Verse 24, listen. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Paul is speaking of a person who is trying to fulfill the law under their own power. It is someone who is trying to beat pornography by putting a filter on their computer and putting locks and blocks and everything else and still finding a way because of that that sin nature that rises up in them and overcomes them and the things they don't want to do they do and the things they want to do they, they, they don't do it. He's saying there is this sin nature in us and until we understand the power that we have and the freedom that we have, we are still living under the law and under the law, we are under a pressure that we cannot be. He introduces this tension of the soul. My dad was a, my dad was a man's man, okay? Um, think, let's see here. Think Daryl from The Walking Dead, with like Negan's charisma, right? He was just, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. He was just, he was man's man. My dad had a ponytail to the middle of his back, a beard to the middle of his chest. He wore overalls every single day of his life. My parents, when they brought me home from the hospital, brought me home to an old trailer home in the stereotype fit for my dad, right? My dad was just Rough, tough, and alpha. These were my dad's careers growing up that that I knew of. Uh, Number one, he was a painter. Number two, he was a co-owner of a junkyard. And number three, he was a mechanic, right? You know them, you know them. One of my uh, friend's older brothers, I was at his house one time and uh, he was in high school and his older brother was like 22, 23. And my friend introduced me to his older brother and he said, hey, it's my friend Luke Cunningham. And he said, whoa, 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 last name Cunningham? And he said, yeah. And he said, is your dad Tim Cunningham? And I said, yeah. And he said, man, I was in a bar the other night and I mouthed off to a Tim Cunningham and the next thing I knew, I woke up and my friends were slapping me on the cheek, asking me if I was okay. It's like, yeah, that's, that's probably... My dad, that was my life in high school. My dad said to me one time, he said, son, listen, you don't need a curfew. Here's what you need to know. If your car breaks down, you fix it. And if somebody messes with you, you kick their tail. Did not use tail, right? He said, this, these are the rules. That's just my dad. My dad was just rough. And, and, and listen, for the record, I am not an advocate. In fact, I think there's, there are few things more immature than a meathead who wants to fight everybody the second they get frustrated, right? They're like a six-year-old that can't control their emotions. They're just, oh, you make me mad, I want to punch, right? There's just, there's, there's nothing mature about that, right? So I'm not advocating for that, right? That's not what I'm trying to advocate. I'm a pastor. I'm not out trying to fight everybody, but When my wife tells me a story of of a guy in our neighborhood who yells at my son on Halloween and tells him, don't put your hand in my candy jar, you ask for it, and then doesn't give him candy, right? When she tells me that my kids are playing in the cul-de-sac and this guy blazes through the stop sign while Canaan's riding his bike over there, right? When she tells me about these fireworks that that these kids are setting off behind our house at 10 p.m., I'm telling you, when I hear about that, this, this beard begins to grow to the middle of my chest. This ponytail grows to the middle of my back, I find some overalls and I literally envision myself taking his candy bowl, throwing it across his lawn, picking him up, slamming him on his own table, and McGregor walking out of his driveway, right? Like there is this spirit that rises up in me and I I saw it growing up, I heard about it growing up, I experienced it growing up and I meet Christ and I try as hard as I can to not become that person, if you will, or some of the expressions of that person and I'm walking with Jesus and I'm a pastor and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I've got a beard, a ponytail, overall, and I'm ready to smash, right? It's the tension. You know this tension. There is you that is worshiping right now, that is passionate right now, that is surrendered to the Lord right now, that's ready to receive from him right now, and then there's you tomorrow night when nobody's around under intense pressure and temptation. Fighting with all that you are to overcome. This is the tension that Paul is introducing. This is the focus of chapter seven, right? Chapter eight is the the freedom, the solution from this. So hear me when I say you got to come next week. If you come this week, you're gonna leave here feeling like you got beat up pretty good. You have to come back next week to hear the solution. But this is what Paul does in chapter seven. He gives an illustration, after he gives an illustration, he explains this tension. After he explains this tension, he drops at the very end the solution, and then it carries on to chapter 8. Okay, let's dive in. Romans chapter 7, 1 through 6. He says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? Verse 2, for example... When a woman dies, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is, uh, she is free from the law and does not commit adultery when she marries her. He's introducing the Jewish ethic on marriage, and he's saying it was only by death. Yes, it expands more in the gospel, but he's saying the Jewish ethic is this, The only way out was death. And then he says, as example, in in verse 4, Romans 7, verse 4, so my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You want to know the point? Here's the point of chapter 7. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result... We can, say we can, we can, one more time, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. If you heard 7, 14 through 24, and you were like, that's me. The things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. What wretched man that I am. What is my hope for this life, this miserable life tormented by sin and death? You can produce a harvest of good works. Listen, verses 5 and 6 are the contrast, okay? So listen to the contrast here. 5 is the law, 6 is the answer. He flirts with the answer a little bit throughout 7, and then chapter 8, he just goes wide open. Here we go. Verse five, when we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Verse six, but now we have been released from the law for we died to it and are no longer captives to its power. You are no longer captive to that old nature. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law. This is really important. He's saying, You don't serve God by trying to do it yourself under the law. Here's how he says, But in the new way of living in the Spirit. Okay, so we're here. He gives an illustration. And then all of a sudden he introduces and he repeats it and he drove it home in, Matthew, in, in, in Romans chapter 6 all throughout 10 and 11, 22, 23. He keeps saying over and over one thing, the old you must die. The old you must die. Robert Louis Stevenson was the author of the uber popular novel, it's been made into movies and everything else. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, somebody has read it for an assignment, I'm sure, not leisurely. Um, so. Here's the synopsis of the book. There is a London doctor, his name is Henry Jekyll, and he begins experimenting with this dark side of science and he creates this potion that he then takes and this potion brings about this second nature within him that is called Mr. Hyde. Now, these two are complete opposites. Dr. Jekyll is a nice man, he's well respected, he is beloved within the community, he's a good person, and Mr. Hyde is a cold-blooded murderer and at first Dr. Jekyll could control Mr. Hyde so he could stop him from coming out and then all of a sudden Mr. Hyde began to gain more and more power and the entire book weaves back and forth between Dr. Jekyll trying to control Mr. Hyde and Mr. Hyde coming out and committing murder and doing all of these terrible things and there is this massive tension among them that exists. Robert Louis Stevenson was a Christian and when he was asked about his inspiration for writing this book, he said, "I found it in my own battle with my sinful nature." Isn't that amazing. He said, "I found it in my own battle with my sinful nature." Anyone know how the book ends? If you were thinking, "Oh, this would be a great summer reading," I'm going to ruin it for you right now. I'm going to tell you exactly how it ends. So. Dr. Jekyll is trying, he gives one last massive effort to control Mr. Hyde, he locks himself into his laboratory and he's experimenting with solutions and he's battling himself and he's fighting against him until all of a sudden, Mr. Utterson and Mr. Poole, his butler, decide to break into the laboratory because they're concerned about him and they don't know what's going on and when they break into the laboratory, they find Mr. Hyde in Dr. Jekyll's clothing dead from suicide in other words his conclusion of the book is screaming out exactly what paul is saying in Romans 6 and in Romans 7 the only way to get the other nature to stop is for it to die it has to die. We are really good as a church at celebrating resurrection life, right? We write great songs about it, we celebrate it, we get excited about it, we pack the church for it, and we are so fired up about new life, resurrected life in Christ. Can I tell you something, the only way to have a resurrected life in Christ is for the old one to die. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, that old Jew has to die. And here is the beautiful thing. You don't have to go to the cross for it. You don't have to because Jesus already did. This is exactly what Paul is explaining in the gospel. He's saying when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. When Jesus rose, you rise and you have new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that old you has to die. You can't live in this new life with Christ if the old you is still alive. You can't walk in the new life that Christ has for you if this old heart is still beating. That's the introduction. That is the illustration that Paul paints. And then he rolls in, Romans 7, 7 through 13. Another question from Paul. Paul operates like this. This is his, uh, his way of writing. He'll write a question, then he'll answer, or write a question, he'll answer, write a question, he'll answer. He goes in, verse seven. Well, then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? It's a good question. So he's saying, if the law can't help me, all the law does is expose my sin, and then by that exposure, I'm tempted for more. Is the law just not really, he's just kind of aiding my sinful nature. The law is fueling this sinfulness in me. He says, of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died, so I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Verse 11, sin took advantage of those commandments and deceived me. It used the commandments to kill me, but still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. He asks the question you're asking, but how can that be? How can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we, so we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's commands for its own evil purposes. Here is what Paul is saying. He is saying the law without the power of the Spirit is only going to expose to you what you are not able to overcome on your own. He's, in fact, that inability to overcome may actually turn to temptation to want to do more. It's the kid who's walking out the front door and you say, don't play in that mud puddle. And then you close the door and go inside. And they're like, Uh, you know, I just, I just want to, like, it's that, it is that exposure to it that then causes the enticement to it because the power of sin is still working. And Paul is saying, in fact, this is, this is a really cool study for you. He's saying the law does not point to the Messiah. The law points to the first Adam. Remember Romans chapter five, he introduced that tension between the first Adam and the last Adam and what he's saying is this, the law only exposes that you are your first father. The one who could not stop from sinning, he could not resist sin, who had the entire world set up for him and he had to indulge in the sin. He's saying the law reveals your first father, the Messiah reveals the spirit, reveals the new. So we have to have the law, the law's holy. The law is good, and we have to have the law because the law reveals to us how sinful we are. My, uh, my wife, ice cream for you. Every time I speak about somebody in my family, I want ice cream until they decide it's diamonds, and then it's like, no, no, no more stories about you, right? Uh, my wife used to be a hoarder, used to be, used to be, I had that in there, right? Like, uh, we, we have saved children's stuff for 10 years. Like, if you went into our attic, we, saved, remember that bouncer that we saved? We saved Zion's bouncer, seven, eight years later, we get it out of the attic, and we put Zadok in it. It was so old, the straps had deteriorated. Right when we set him in, boom, he fell straight to the ground, he was out. Like a $12 bouncer. I'm like, what on earth are we saving all of this stuff for? So then she comes to me one day and she says, hey, babe, I've been thinking about it. I don't know if she watched like a Netflix documentary or or what, but she was like, hey, I've been thinking about this. Uh, I think I'm going to become a minimalist. (laughs) Any any other husbands walk through this one? Like they all of a sudden become a minimalist in a day? She's like, I'm going to become a minimalist. I'm going to get rid of everything that we don't need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set things up so that we have to clean up after ourselves. I'm going to do all this. So, so you know what she did? She got rid of all of our plates, all of our dishes, all of our bowls, all of our silverware. We had five plates, five bowls, five forks, five knives, five spoons, one pan. Here's what she said. She said, it's going to force us to clean up. It's gonna force us, right? Because after we use it all, we we have to clean it or we won't have anything for the next meal. Do you know how that worked out? (laughs) We finished dinner, dinner's over, all the dishes are in the sink, we roll into bath time, we roll into bedtime, we put the kids to bed, we're both too tired to do dishes, we fall asleep. I wake up in the morning, I make eggs with the one pan that we have, and after I finish eggs, I'm like, man, I need a plate. Open up, oh, there's no plates. I'm so annoyed. Like, what is this minimalism stuff? Like, I'll just eat it out of the skillet. Open up the drawer, no forks. So then I'm like, I'll just eat it with the spatula that I have out of the skillet right here because I'm so annoyed at this minimalism, right? So here I am, scooping eggs, eating them off the spatula, like, wow, minimalism's great, right? It's gonna make us clean up after ourselves, they said, right? All that it did was reveal to us a standard that we could not keep in our home. That's literally all that it did was show us. You know what we did? We bought a bunch more forks. We bought a bunch more knives. We bought a bunch more plates. Why? Because we couldn't do it. That's the purpose of the law. The law reveals to you a standard you will never keep on your own. The law reveals to you that which you cannot do under your own power. That is what makes the law holy is it reveals to us our need for a savior. Listen to Spurgeon on the law. This is so good. Spurgeon says, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who doesn't preach the law. The law is the needle And you cannot draw the silk and thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make a way for it. If men don't understand the law, they will not feel they are sinners and they will never value the sin offering. Listen to Spurgeon here. There is no healing a man until the law has wounded him. No making him alive until the law has slain him. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the purpose of the law is to reveal, it is to slay you. It is an autopsy of your soul. And it opens up your soul and it reveals to you that which you cannot do on your own. And once we understand that, we're able to welcome the sin offering as it was meant to be—the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus—so that we can live by the power of the Spirit, and the old me is defeated. So let's roll into the the pinnacle part of chapter seven. I read it to you at the beginning. Uh, I'll I'll read it to you a little bit more in the beginning er, right now. But let me let me give you a couple notes first. Number one. Uh, Paul is speaking of someone trying to obey the law. He makes that very, very clear contextually. There's no reference to the Holy Spirit. It's afterwards, you'll see his answer, but he's he's communicating to somebody trying to obey the law. This whole chapter is written to magnify that impossibility. Remember contextually our audience, right? We have a group of Jews that are trying to force the Gentiles to be Jews and they're fighting and infighting inside of the church and Paul is coming and Paul is saying, you all are a mess. It's not Jew, it's not Gentile, it's Christ, and none of you are making it there right now. You've gotta die to your old self, receive Christ as the Messiah, let go of liturgy and move forward, okay? So, uh, Paul uses I, but he's speaking of everyone. This was very, very common in Jewish context to use I as plurality. It's like me saying I was, I died to the old me and I rose to the new me while communicating to you I'm talking of us. I died to the old me, I rose to to the new me. So he's using I as plurality. Uh, Romans 7, 14 through 24, it's really an extension of Romans 2, uh, 17 through 24. In fact, if I had to rework all of this, here's what I would do. Romans 2, 17 through 24. Romans 7, verse five, remember that. And then Romans 7, 14 through 24, that is life under the law. That is what life looks like under the law. And then I would come back and say Romans 2, 28 through 29, Romans 7, verse 6, and Romans 7, 25 through 8, 4 is life in the spirit. Okay, so that's a way better breakdown. But anyway, here we go. This is Paul, Romans 7, 14 through 24. He has given an illustration of what this is like. He has explained the tension in detail, and now he illustrates it to the whole crowd. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. Can you hear the words of a man who has been slain by the law? I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't wanna do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that that when i want to do what is right i inevitably do what is wrong i love god's law with all my heart but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind this power makes me a slave to sin and that is st- a slave to sin that is still within me oh what miserable person i am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death i um as a kid, I used to, who, who in here likes the dog races? Who in here, you ever dog races? You know, you know, gambling's a sin, right? Phil, we're gonna pray for you. We're gonna believe God for you to live. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I loved him. When I was a kid, I grew up uh, going to the dog races. I, I worked a paper route with it, with an old man who, uh, he was too old to do his paper route but didn't wanna let go of it, so he just hired me to, to run the route for him. So on Saturday nights we would do the Sunday paper and sometimes he would pick me up early on a Saturday and he would take me to the dog races. And he would, well, I mean, he bet these things like crazy and he would show me how to read the programs and everything and If if he lost, he didn't speak the rest of the night. He listened to talk radio 9.80 a.m. and he was just grouchy and angry. If he won, it was classic rock and he bought Waffle House when we finished, right? It was just our jam together, and I, I loved it. We had so much fun, and he used to go, and he would, he would walk me through the dog races, and he would walk me through the program, and he'd go back to their previous races, and they time each, each leg that they run. They actually time it on the dog so you know who's a late breaker, who's an early starter and fades at the end and everything else, and as he would go, he would say, oh, but that was, that was a slow track. That was a slow track. Oh, no, that's a fast track. That's a really fast track. And I asked him, I said, what makes the difference in a slow track and a fast track? And he said, the rabbit. He said, if the rabbit runs faster, the faster dogs will work harder. He said, if the rabbit runs slower, They'll slow down a bit as they won't give their maximum effort. And all of a sudden, he said, if you're going to bet an underdog, bet it at a slow track. If you're going to bet the favorite, bet it at a fast track. But let me ask you something. What happens when this occurs at a dog race? Guys, do you have that video? Still with a big lead though. Jasmine Lily, Famari, then Penny Eagle, and Lady Shanna. Oh, they've caught the lure. They've caught the lure. Gee, you're on Jasmine Lilly, you're stiff, because it was going like the winner.
1: Jasmine Lilly.
0: It... Uh, it was going boldly out in front. But... Uh, the was breaking down on the home turn. And that's the end of race number five, no doubt. We'll just stand by, but I would imagine this is a no race. When, when we talk about Romans seven fourteen through 24, you can feel like someone who's running a race that has no point. You feel like someone who the things I want to do, I don't, the things I don't want to do, I keep... Doing, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this miserable life of sin. You, you feel like all of a the sudden there is just no, no purpose to do the race because I'm out. That is, that is the danger of leaving you with Romans chapter 7 through verse 24. But let me read to you the solution. Let me read to you. I, I almost said Jesus is the rabbit that comes down and keeps running, right? But that would not be a good illustration. Romans 7... Verse 25, he says, thank God. Are you finally ready for some good news? He says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. We're going to jump into Romans 8, just four verses real quick. He says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Every ounce of condemnation you experienced when you heard Paul say, what wretched man that I am, the things I want to do, I can't, the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. Who's going to relieve? me, from this miserable life of suffering, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Verse 3, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of our weakness of our sinful nature, so God did what the law could not do. He did for you what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 4. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Romans 7 cuts you open and it dissects you and it makes you raw before the Lord so that you can live a life in the Spirit and be free.